Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell, in Rory Stewart's house. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for dinner last night. Thank you for the pleasure of meeting your mum, your wife, your children. Well, it's been great. You're very good with children. I wasn't expecting that. There was a softy side to you coming out there. Why were you not expecting me to be good with children? I don't know. I thought, thought it might be quite tough for them, but you, you're really kind of charming the seven-year-old. I thought it was, no, it was good. I, I, I've, I've always been quite... I'm very good with babies, and I'm quite good with kids, I'd That's say. That's very good. Yeah. yeah. No, it's been very, very nice here, and a uh, nice sunny day in Scotland. Not bad. Burnley had a great win on the way up. Go on, tell us about that. Oh, you don't care, really. Don't even pretend, <laughs> don't even pretend that you care about football. Uh, and then, just as I was arriving, the news was breaking that uh, President Macron had fairly roundly beaten Marine Le Pen, which was good news. Somebody sent a question to say, as you're in Scotland, could you both say, what is your favourite Scottish delicacy? Okay, I'm going to go first. So I have oat cakes and porridge every morning, religiously. My father was really into haggis, but I think he did it mostly in order to annoy the English. <laughs> I, I, like, I do like haggis. Let's fast forward to today and France. Which you're very happy about. I, um, well, I was. I, don't, I never worried he was going to lose. Um, but I, I had too many people who were saying, oh, God, you know, America had Trump. You had Brexit. Are we going to have that same moment? And there was a couple of days when I just had a kind of slight panic i think it would have been catastrophic if she'd won on so many levels and i'm glad that he's won and won pretty well and i think it's hilarious to watch the sort of telegraph spectator right-wing industrial tufton street complex for whom 52 percent in a referendum is the most overwhelming expression of the will of the people but apparently marine le pen really effectively won this election <laughs> and you you notice a lot of young people where you were in france being supportive of her yeah, people who, that, that's the one thing I think that is really, people have got to work out how you handle this for the future. I think the younger generation who backed Mélenchon, a lot of them felt nothing about turning that from far left to far right. And I think that's a real problem. It's like, well, why are they voting for, okay, even if you get why they vote for one extreme, why are they then voting for the absolute opposite end of the poll? And that says to me that they're just attracted by the extremes. And the second thing I think that's really interesting is that she did do a very good job of de-demonization of herself so that probably there is a generation who's got no sense of what she's been about, what her father was about, where her politics came from. And I think you saw there were moments in the TV debate where the mass, the kind of smiling mask slipped a little bit. And I think when she, when she started talking about why she wanted to ban the veil and, and all that stuff, you sort of saw that kind of zealous passion whereas the cost of living stuff she was kind of faking the passion maybe but listen france is going to be quite difficult to govern um you know that's a lot of people who voted for an extreme party it's very difficult to get the pattern of populism because you get a sense that from i guess 2012 2014 onwards there's this big wave modi in india Erdogan suddenly goes much more extreme in Turkey. You've got Hungary, you've got Poland, you've got Brazil. Trump in 2016, you've got Bolsonaro in Brazil. But there's obviously a different story going on here too. In France, yes, Le Pen's 
stock is increasing. She's getting more at each time. Mm-hmm. But she hasn't won. And in Slovenia, the populace was defeated. No, I think the Slovenia thing is really, really interesting. Um, and it's very interesting to some of the things that we've been talking about in relation to Johnson, for example. Because the guy who's been defeated, who has been prime minister before, um, he got driven out on the back of corruption, then he's come back. Uh, and the the new the new winner, this guy Golob, with the and he doesn't call it. It's interesting what Delia Smith said last week. He doesn't call it a party; he calls it a movement, the freedom movement. And they have campaigned on the threat to the rule of law, illiberalism, attacks on the independence independence of the media and of the judiciary. So a lot of the stuff that is attacks on the the bodies controlling the election, like the electoral commission yeah, yeah. legislation yeah. currently going through in the UK. So that's why I took huge heart from that, that a country like Slovenia, from that kind of, you know, yep. Yugoslav base, as yep. it were, where politics yep. is very tough. Um, and he's and, and the other thing is, this party did not exist a year ago, and he was a Green Party guy, Golob, the new mm. winner, Green Party, who had no MPs. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And it's amazing because you also would have thought that campaigning on things like the rule of law, constitution, justice are not necessarily the kind of things that get voters excited. If I were doing it in Britain, if I was Keir Starmer, I think I'd put a written constitution there. I think the point is that we've finally bust through the unwritten constitution. Mm. Boris is showing again and again the fact that he's not paying any attention to the ministerial code. I mean, and he's playing games, saying things like, um, or his supporters are saying things like, well, the point about the ministerial code is for ministers to resign to the prime minister, so the prime minister can't resign to the prime minister. And the unwritten constitution was based on the idea of... Yeah, basically people being honourable, having a sense of moral restraint. And Burke is very explicit about this in the 18th century. He says that really the constitution in Britain isn't about the theoretical powers. You know, he says, who knows what the theoretical powers, the monarchy or the House of Commons, the House of Lords could be. But in practice, the reason why the House of Commons can't abolish the House of Lords or the monarchy can't do crazy stuff is they restrain themselves. They've got to send what those unwritten rules are. So I think now that we've seen it with proroguing parliament. We've seen it with attempts to do illegal actions. We've seen it attempts to challenge over lobbying and Owen Patterson. We've seen it now again with all this stuff to do with the ministerial code. Well, we're seeing it as well with the Electoral Commission and, we, and, we, and we're definitely seeing it, I think, with I mean, John Major did an interview not that long ago where he said that, you know, he, he found it very hard to imagine that a prime minister could be found to break a law and that they wouldn't automatically resign. Was that, yeah, they'd automatically resign. And then we've seen it actually also with things like electoral rules. So um, I think I was complaining last week that the electoral rules in London for the election, which used to allow independent candidates some chance of coming through, have now all been abolished. And they just do it on a 50 plus one vote in the House of Commons. So there's no, in every, every other country, there's a constitutional rule that stops a simple majority changing fundamental things like the electoral system. Mm. But the problem started back with Blair and Cameron. Because they too used very simple majorities in the House of Commons to change fundamental things like setting up Supreme Courts, mm. and in Cameron's case, trying to abolish the House of Lords, introducing fixed-term parliament. Was a, fixed-term parliament. Where does the manifesto fit into all that, though? Well, I, in any normal country, it doesn't matter. It's in a manifesto. Mm. Every other country in the world, you can only change fundamental things if you've got a if you've got a two-thirds majority. Yeah. Or two-thirds majority in Parliament, or you have a special procedure with your legislature, or you have a referendum, yeah. because. These rules exist to protect the public against the politicians. So you can't allow a simple majority, even with a mandate, to change things like the way your court works or how the House of Commons relates to the House of Lords or any of this stuff. So let me a question from Mediator. 
With Le Pen losing and Janssen and losing in Slovenia, is this a significant moment of triumph for the re- renewal of democratic values and a setback for populist nationalism and Putin? I mean, I kind of hope so. And then we've got the question from Professor G. Given the steady rise of Le Pen and the annihilation of the mainstream parties by the Macron movement, where will French politics be four years from now? So it's told in two ways, isn't it? As you said, yeah. the steady rise of Le Pen mm. or the crushing defeat of Le Pen. Mm. I think the four years question, I mean, it's very, I think Marine Le Pen, yes, she's risen and she's done better than the last time. Uh, I suspect the person that she'll be most worrying about at the moment is not Macron, but Marion Maréchal Le Pen, who's dropped the Le Pen name, which is her niece, who defected to Zemmour and who is very attractive, very articulate, young by comparison, and I mean, I think has weaknesses, which is, you know, I think it was probably an error that she's made to go after Zamor. But I suspect she'll go very, very quiet for a while and then come up under the radar. And I think she could be quite a threat. Um, I think what happen, you know, what happens to the, 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 the currently destroyed mainstream parties, whether they morph into something else. Um, and Macron doesn't have a, an obvious successor. No. And the reality of this movement is that it's quite fragile. So that if... We hope he doesn't. But if he really screws up over the next four years, Le Pen is in quite a strong position to mm. challenge. Mm. Now, should we talk about your friend Boris Johnson? Yeah, go on then. Um, I was slightly alarmed that you told me over breakfast that you'd been dreaming about him. But we'll, we'll, leave, we'll leave that. We'll leave that. Um, so there's Le Pen gets defeated. Um, so Macron has won. And he's, I guess, given the, shown how to take on populism, maybe, by sticking to principles and so forth. So you... You fought Johnson to try to win the Tory leadership. What did you take out of that in terms of this debate about how to tackle a populist who's willing to say anything to get elected? Well, I think this could become very relevant. I think Boris is now uh, in a very difficult situation. The reason I've been dreaming about him is weirdly, although um, you know, I have a, a sort of incredible moral dislike of this man. I mean, I find him the most disturbing human being. I see him almost as this kind of monstrous kind of fairy tale figure. But I'm beginning to feel weirdly in my dreams sorry for him, uh, because I'm beginning to sense just both how at some level I think he must be very unhappy, but also he is being destroyed. People are circling, and I think he doesn't have long to go. And I think we're going to be into leadership. So um, one of the things I'd love to explore a bit is how these leadership battles work Mm. and how do you run against someone like boris i mean obviously i tried and failed dismally did you did you you think you could beat him i thought i could beat him because i thought it was obvious to people that he was going to be an awful prime minister and that he was an awful person and i thought that it was obvious that britain would never choose someone like that i i felt in cumbria for example that people didn't take him seriously that they thought yeah he's okay for mayor of london but that's because they saw it as a largely ceremonial role. But this was a serious country and you wouldn't appoint someone like that as your prime minister. And it was very, very painful for me to realize that people were prepared to go along with someone like that. Because, I mean, actually, I I remember the the moment where I decided to announce that I wouldn't serve in his cabinet and that I'd resign if he got in was that he'd said to me three weeks before, this is just the start of the leadership in 2019, he'd said to me three weeks before, that he'd never consider a no-deal Brexit. And then the day that Theresa May stepped down, he said, you know, 
he, he was pushing hard for a no-deal Brexit. And that was mm. the moment where I was just like, okay, so he said this to me three weeks ago. He's now mm. saying this. But I, I realized that moral outrage and saying that this guy is a danger and that he's going to be a bad prime minister isn't enough mm. if people think he can win. And I think the same is obviously playing out with Trump in the United States. Mm. So if they no longer think he can win, that is the only thing that will make the Tories move against him. Yeah, if they think that they're going to lose their seats, and I think that the May election is going to be critical for them, mm. because many of them are ex-councillors. The core of their Conservative Party membership are people who are councillors, often the officers and their associations are councillors. But that leads us to another thing. I mean, do you think he's going to lose 800 seats in the council elections? No, not at all. I think the I, I thought <laughs> two things were recent. Uh, there was a question from somebody who said, uh, oh, he's called Alan Crapper, which I thought was a, a very good name, given that the question was asking me if I could think of anything, anything good to say about this government. Um, and he says, you're not allowed to say nothing, and you're not allowed to say they're very good at screwing things up. I think they are very good at driving messaging and narrative. And I think that the, um, the council election story, I could be completely wrong, and I could be doing a, j- a journalist a disservice, I think the story briefed into the Telegraph that they're going to lose 800 seats was a deliberate piece of, if we only lose 300, it's not so bad. And they've done another one today. The Times is running a story saying that the Sue Gray report is so bad that he will have to resign. And I think it's a bit like a lawyer who's saying to the client, look, you know, I know you've been done for murder, but we're going to try and get you off with manslaughter and we'll, we'll claim that as a victory. It's good. It's good. And I apologize. There's a bit of noise in the background. It's probably my, my, my five-year-old trying to break into the room to hear more about well, it contemporary is politics. It yeah. is his home. And he has had his father describe me as being very good with children. So there you go. <laughs> um, now, listen, just on the, on the mechanics, though, so you were involved in that contest and it was an interesting thing because you went in, most people thought, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody's ever heard of Rory Stewart. And then suddenly you actually started to become interesting and you were rising up and you got through the second round. And and it was a massive field of candidates at one point. What was actually going on in terms of the deals that get done, the discussions that you sure. have? And you obviously were surprised at Johnson's venality. Were they all a bit venal? Well, let, let, let me start by just describing the system because I think this is going to become relevant. If, as I suspect, after the May elections, they move against Johnson, he goes and there's a leadership thing, we're going to see it all over again. Yeah. So first thing to understand in basic terms is that it's the Tory MPs who knock it down to the final two. Yeah. And then it goes to the association in the country, which then selects, and that's only about 100,000 people. So it's very undemocratic. You end up with a situation in which your prime minister is basically narrowed down to two by the MPs and then selected by the by the associations of the country. Now, that structural change is quite new in the Conservative Party. In the past, it was only the MPs. Mm. And I think in the days when it was only the MPs, Boris would have been less likely to make it through. One of the main reasons he was put through to the last two is because people sense that the Conservative Party members in the country adored him. Mm. and would vote from overwhelmingly. Mm. In the old days, which people used to criticise, criticise for being smoke-filled rooms and old, grey suits yeah, and old yeah. buffers doing stuff, they yeah. would have thought, this is a disgraceful human being, we can't possibly have him as yeah. Prime Minister, and they probably wouldn't have let him through. Yeah. And actually, oddly, you can make the same story about Trump. It's changes in the way the primary system work and the party system works mm. in the United States that allowed someone like Trump to come through in a way that he wouldn't have been able to in the past. Maybe Jeremy Corbyn as well in the Labour system. Jeremy Corbyn too, yeah. Mm. Because actually what you're doing is you're taking away from the members of parliament who know these people best, 
With Boris Johnson, everybody knew because they'd worked with him for years. I mean, he'd first been elected to Parliament in 2001. They'd seen for years that he lied, that he was unreliable, that he couldn't concentrate on a brief. And anyone who'd worked with Jeremy Corbyn for the 30 years, I guess, he'd been in Parliament, sensed he wouldn't make a good Prime Minister. Well, certainly sensed that he probably wouldn't adapt, change his mind, uh, devise arguments and policies that spoke to the future rather than the past. I think there was certainly that feeling. Tell us just on that. I, I want to come back to the Conservative leadership, but... So do I. You can't just jump around. Okay. And, no, we're going to stick with the Conservative leadership. All right, stick with the Conservative leadership for a second. I'll, I'll come back to Corbyn in a you, second. You avoided my question about whether Johnson was the only one to display venality in deal-making. No, no, they all did amazing deal-making. And it was completely fascinating. So Michael Gove, for example, mm. uh, is probably the most notorious example of this. He got in touch with me, I guess, uh, when we were getting into the final five or six. And he reached out and invited me over for breakfast. And it, at that stage, I had momentum. He'd been stuck. He was uh, essentially, he was like a, a plane that had its engine had cut out in mid glide. He was barely putting on any votes. And I'd gone, I think, eight, 16, 37. So I was doubling each time. Yeah. So I thought, okay, this is the moment. Just to explain to people, that's because the one who loses a round drops out. Drops out. And, then and, their and votes almost every show. time someone dropped out, most you of those votes would, would yeah. go to me. And so it seemed at that moment, weirdly, I was leading the opinion polls and I was second in the betting odds. So I go to this meeting in which I imagine what's going to happen is Michael Gove is going to say that he's going to be happy to come in behind me, or at least that's a possibility. That's what we're discussing. <laughs> Um, but it's a very confidential meeting. Nobody's to know that this meeting is happening. It's happening in one of his lieutenant's houses, private house in London. Uh, we go in and out very secretly for this meeting. Sure enough, about three hours after the meeting, all over the newspapers, Rory Stewart's gone in to see Michael Gove, and he's committed to coming in behind Michael Gove, and he's throwing in the towel. Unbelievable. So I'm then in... I bet it was the Times. So then, the, the Times is basically his notice board. Absolutely. Yeah. Then... He says to me all through that day, oh, Rory, I'm sorry about that. Some misunderstanding. I very apologize. Uh, you know, very keen to work with you, very keen to work with you. And then the following morning, the Times leads with Michael saying, I would be completely unsuitable to be a prime minister. I couldn't possibly serve under me. And again, he's very apologetic. Rory, I'm so sorry. I think I got a bit carried away in that Times article. I maybe took it too far with that. Um, and it was at that point that I realized that he... And the other campaigns had decided that they needed to knock me out yeah. rather than go against Boris. So that by the time we get to the Tuesday debate, second debate, BBC debate, where I'm assuming that I'm going to be able to have my first great shot at Boris because he'd, he'd refused to turn up to the Channel 4 yeah, debate. Yeah. What I actually discover is all the others have turned their fire on me and I can't sort of dodge their bullets to get to Boris. So who was left by then? Gove? So Gove, Sajid Javid, Javid uh, Jeremy Hunt. Gove, Sajid Javid, Jeremy Hunt, me and Boris, yeah. Right, Hancock was out by then. Hancock's out by then, yeah. 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 So it, it was, a, I mean, I, I thought um, again and again, these amazing moments. So there was a man who was my principal private secretary in, in uh, DFID, who I really rated and really trusted. And he went out uh, and he was saying, I'm, you know, trying to decide what to do. I really want to plot with you. I think you could be the future. We go out for dinner together. I lay out my whole plan and how we've got. Next morning, he tells me that he's with Matt Hancock. He's obviously been with Matt Hancock for weeks. He's obviously actually told Hancock he's going to this dinner with me to find out what my game plan is. Um, well, do you think he was even just eating up your time? 
Well, with Hancock, I, I did worry about that. So when Matt Hancock got wiped out on the Sunday morning, he called me up to uh, right up to Kilburn, where he lived. And we went for a very, very long walk around, around the park in Kilburn, in which he was talking about how he was really tempted to come in behind me. And, you know, maybe he and me could be like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. He could be the chancellor. I could be the prime minister. And I was producing this beautiful pitch because he still had at that stage, I can't remember, he still had 18 votes to play for. Bring them all behind me. We were all people who were against the No Deal Brexit. We were all very much against Boris Johnson. He was Boris very pro-Remain, wasn't he? Very pro-Remain. Yeah. He'd said that he, he found it difficult to imagine serving in a Boris administration. He'd said that proroguing Parliament would be betraying the people who died on the D-Day beaches. Oh, God, he did, yeah. Hills, so. He did. Um, so he eats up most of uh, my morning when I'm supposed to be prepping for the debate that evening. And sure enough, uh, he then declares for Boris Johnson. Which he'd obviously already decided. Which I imagine was in the back of his mind. There wasn't and, something you, you don't... Well, certainly just... my team were absolutely convinced that he'd wasted three hours of my time with no intention whatsoever of coming in behind me. What a snake. Well, I... Listen, well, who, 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 the, okay, Gove Hancock, which was the biggest snake in that scenario? I, I find... Oh, God, it's a difficult question, isn't it? <laughs> a difficult question, difficult question, difficult question. They're, they're interesting people, though. Oddly, they are both very effective ministers. They're probably in Boris's cabinet were among the two most effective ministers he had. And uh, I'd push back on that. I think, I think Gove was terrible. I, I think Gove's brilliant because of his relationship with the times, actually because Murdoch basically likes him and he gets such a free run. I think Gove is really good at conveying a media narrative that he's an effective minister. I think he was a terrible education. I think what, the, what he did to schools was dreadful. I think that his role in justice, uh, not having it, and now he's le- he's in charge of leveling up. So I I came into and Hancock. I I came into I came in I came in I came into <laughs> I came into justice um, after Gove, and I came in as a minister of state, so as a junior minister, and he'd yeah. been the secretary of state, and he got in touch with me immediately, and he came to see me in the tea room. He spent an hour and a half with me going through every detail of the department, mm-hmm. opening his diary, sharing okay, numbers well, I, with me. I would put that down as basic competence so far. Only guy who's ever done it in my whole political career. Wow. Yeah. Phenomenal handover, very generous to somebody who's more junior than him. And immediately after the meeting, following up with more emails, set up for me to meet people in the Prison Reform Trust. Okay, what did he achieve as Justice Secretary? Uh, he managed to get the money for new prisons, which nobody had gotten placed before. Mm-hmm. And that was a big deal. That was two and a half billion pounds that he managed to extract out of us, and maybe even more out of a system didn't want to do it. He really committed to putting education back into prisons, which Chris Groening had put put stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I think, had a genuinely humane attitude towards prisoners. Yeah. I think it was really the, actually the making of him. I think oddly, okay. he did ask me. I think I told you he did ask me to do a review of mental health in prisons. You see, there we are. Yeah. Okay. So I'm saying he, I will give you. He's an effective. Minister politician. And I think he's got better all the time. I think he's had problems under Boris because he's not allowed to get anywhere near the media, which mm. has been a real problem for him. But he was good at deference. Def- friends close to Gove still get quoted to the Times very regularly. But at, at <laughs> Defra, he was actually at very imaginative. He completely embraced the environment, embraced the rewilding movement, which was an unusual thing to do as a Tory minister. Yeah. So I think actually he's got better and better because I think he's he's worked out 
how to make big, clear, bold statements and not get drawn down into technocratic detail. All right. Very quick question yeah. before we take a break. When Boris Johnson is replaced by Jeremy Hunt, Jack seems to know more about this contest than we do, and asks Rory to join his cabinet, will the podcast continue or will Boris Johnson join the podcast? <laughs> What do you what do you think what do you what do you think about the Boris Sanderson Campbell podcast? How that's going to be? It's ever going to happen? I don't I don't think it's ever going to happen. It could be could be could be could be magical, uh, couldn't it? I don't. Th- I mean, I don't. I've actually got a photograph of me with Boris Johnson when we, he was mayor of London. And I was doing a charity thing for leukemia and lymphoma research, which is now Bloodwise, and we were riding a bike together. And I've got this look on my face that says, "I really want to push this guy off his bike." <laughs> Did you ever get on with him? Uh. I got on with him in that I accepted as the, as a part of that media sort of thing that he was entertaining, he quirky, had ideas and so forth. Once I so that was when we were both journalists. Once I was working in Number Ten, I was only really conscious of him as this this guy in Brussels who was literally making stories up day after day after day after day. And that gets really tedious. And I can remember him once coming to one of my briefings, and it was a, I can't remember what the summit was about. It was a huge briefing, like hundreds and hundreds of journalists who were at this briefing. And I was doing this briefing. And I can remember Johnson walking in at the back, no pen, no notebook, shirt hanging out, and just sort of chuntering and giving a kind of running commentary. And from this, and I remember all the other Brussels journalists literally thought he was a, a joke and a charlatan. So I didn't really have much of a relationship with him. And then I had a very funny moment when I took my daughter. My daughter badgered me to get tickets for a Miley Cyrus concert. And it ended up, we were in the same box as Boris Johnson, who was mayor. And then the guy who had got sorted the the whole thing out for us, he took us down for a meet and greet with Miley Cyrus. (laughs) And... Boris Johnson, so she's sort of, we're all this ridiculous kind of, you know, Johnson says, he actually said to me at one point, he said, he said, can you, can you believe this? We, 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 we titans of modern Britain, is what he says to me. We titans of modern Britain. And we're hanging around waiting to shake the hand of a woman whose name we'd never heard of until yesterday, which was quite funny and broadly accurate. Uh, anyway, Miley turns up. And, of course, Grace, my daughter, and Johnson's daughter are very excited. And we've got, they've got a couple of friends each, and they're very, very excited. She comes up. She's introduced to Boris Johnson, Mayor of London. Hello, Mr. Mayor. And Johnson turns to me and says, and this is my deputy, Alistair Campbell, <laughs> which was quite funny because it was one of those things. Where there is, she's about to go on stage. There is no point trying to <laughs> unpick this. And she's like, hello, Mr. Deputy Mayor. How are you? And <laughs> So he could, fair enough, he could make me laugh, but... Uh, I think any any humour or sense of liking of his journalistic character has, has long gone. You can't have people like that as Prime Minister, I'm sorry. Let's take a break. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed 
Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. So our sponsor this week is The New European, and I believe you've finally pulled off what you've always wanted, which is a link between football and politics. <laughs> no, I do it all the time. Um, yeah, I've got, I've, I've got the front cover. Well, congratulations. This week, yeah, and I've also, I did it as my German homework. You've done it in German? I've done it in German and English because it's an open letter to Jurgen Klopp. Now, do you know who Jurgen Klopp is, Roy? You're not a big football fan. No, I'm not, not a big fan, but but you've informed me who Jurgen Klopp is. Okay, so Jurgen Klopp is the manager of Liverpool, and he's, I reckon, one of the top two coaches in the world at the moment, but he's also an extraordinary bloke. Uh, he is a leader. He is somebody that brings real spirit and joy to his team, to the community. He was a really credible voice on covid on vaccination uh he has spoken out against brexit which makes him a very good human being in my eyes he has he has asked the question why does this great country us why do we give power to people like johnson and farage which again is a very very good question so i've basically written a pean of praise to his football and to his character and i pleaded with him to once he's won the quadruple to go and, into politics. And people can read this in the New European, and I believe there's an offer. There's always an offer. Um, it's a special offer just for rest is pol- listeners of The Rest is Politics. One pound a week for the digital subscription, two pounds a week for the paper version as well. You go to the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash rest is politics. It's their best subscription offer anywhere. That's the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash rest is politics. And the other thing, Rory, you know, we talked about food security. Yep. And I mentioned Minette Batters, head of the National Farmers Union. She and I had a conversation after that, our discussion, and she's now writing for the New European next week about food security. Fantastic. There we go. It's all the synergy is just awesome. And a good chance to brush up your German. (laughs) Now back to the podcast. Welcome back to The Rest of Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. We're now on to questions, and John Sands has sent in, I think, probably the best question we've ever had. <laughs> Did Tony Blair ever consider wearing a short skirt to distract John Major at PMQs? No, he thought about long skirt. No, um, no, and I think this may relate to Angela Rayner. Boris Johnson thinks, and the Tories think, that when he's confronted by Angela Rayner at Prime Minister's questions when she has to stand in for Keir Starmer, for example, when he had COVID, is that she, Sharon Stone basic instinct, like crosses and uncrosses her legs. To distract Boris. To distract Boris Johnson, who, as we know, is not averse to being distracted by... Well, they're they're sort of playing off that, aren't they? They're playing off the idea that he's the kind of guy who's going to be distracted by it. So they're sort of playing into the story of Boris as this kind of wicked chap. Once Now, there's this funny sound going on, which is my little boy reading Treasure Island. Um, (laughs) Sasha, when you turn the pages, could you uh, make sure we don't make too much noise turning the pages? Very quiet turning of the page. The thing that really got my goat about the story was this thing that said, it was actually quoting, claiming to quote an MP. No idea if they make it up or not. Let's just, our listeners may be shocked. Newspapers do make up stories. Uh, but it quotes a Tory MP as saying that obviously he can't compete with his Oxford Union debating skills, but 
she has other qualities, i.e. her legs. And then, then as somebody pointed out, actually quite well on Twitter, what are these Oxford Union debating skills? I mean, apart from just basically refusing to answer the question. Yeah, and also, I think most of the, one of the reasons they're probably trying to do her in is because when Angela Rayne has been up against him, she's been pretty good. And I can think of many, many, many working class people with whom Boris Johnson would not last two minutes in debate, particularly if there were no cameras there. <laughs> so, no, I saw the whole thing eat of sexism, uh, classism, snobbery. Is there anything that you regret from your time at the Mirror going after? We talk about Mail on Sunday. Anything that you regret about the way that she went after politicians? There's a couple of stories, actually, I remember at the Mirror. There was once I did a story about a pools winner. There's a woman who won the pools and she ticked the no publicity box. Now, the reason it became a story was because it turned out that the guy who collected her pools coupon filled in the numbers for her, knowing that she always did the same numbers, and then posted it for her. It then turned out that she didn't give him anything. Okay, so we thought this was quite a good story. I go off and I basically harass this woman into either trying to talk to me, which she ticked the no publicity box, she didn't want to talk to me, or to giving me the story, explaining why she wouldn't give the money, or, or maybe it, that she would, right? And I, f I sort of feel bad about that one, because I thought, you know, she did take the no publicity box, she was an ordinary member of the public, and, you know, whose business was it? I think the only politician that maybe at times I might occasionally lie awake at night thinking, mm, God, did I go over the top, was possibly John Major. And what happened to John Major? What were the stories about John Major in those Well, days? John Major, when he was a rising star, and I was political editor on The Mirror, I kind of cultivated him, got very friendly with him and Norma, did a big magazine profile of them at home and, and got on very well with him. I think when he became leader of the Tory party, I think he found it very difficult to understand that I changed mode. I felt now he's the leader of the Tory party. I'm a avowedly, openly Labour-supporting journalist. So I started to be a bit more aggressive and, and sometimes I think went over the top. And then probably that continued when I then joined Tony Blair. And it's fascinating listening to you because I now realise that obviously when I was running for the leadership, I had the Guardian people being very nice about me because I was going up against Boris Johnson, right? Mm. And obviously, if I had been lucky enough to be elected, they would have turned on me in an instant. And my colleagues were probably right in being very suspicious to the fact that I had all these yeah. left-wing newspapers being complimentary towards me. Well, when you were showing me your 3, 000, the 3,500 trees that you planted in the area last night, and I was saying the last Tory to show me his trees was Michael Eseltide, uh, his very fine arboretum. Um, of course, I had a good relationship with Heseltine, I think precisely for that that reason probably but i said so and what's been interesting was, with john major are you prepared to tell the story about you going to see michael heseltine and 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 what happened at the end of your visit oh rory that's harsh i'm trying to think of zedia well how could i put it so fiona and i went there there were all these sort of great and grand tories who were there and at the end as i they were all signing the visitor's book <laughs> <laughs> and I go up to sign, thinking this is what you do at these posh country houses where these Tory squires all hang out. He's not a real squire, of course. And uh, so I, get, I grab the pen and he just comes across and he says, oh, I don't think so. I don't think you should sign that. I don't want my friends to know you've been here. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all tribal, you see. It's not just me who's tribal. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Just for the record, I don't want to explain about those trees. This is, this is not an arboretum. These are mostly... <laughs> native trees this is me <laughs> no, doing my bit you're doing for the a great thing yeah. you're doing a yeah. great thing with the trees 
We don't have enough trees. Thank you. And you've planted 3,500. No, so yeah, John Major, and I was actually quite pleased that during the People's Vote campaign, I did a couple of things with him where I, f- I felt I was able to <laughs> get a more even Do you keel. think he's forgiven you? Uh, I don't think he'd have done stuff as he did for the People's Vote if he hadn't. Right. Yeah, I, don't, I think so. I think so. I get the feeling that he has. And also, I also do genuinely think he's been very, very impressive post-office. I think the, look, Tony gets it in the neck for, they've all made money, right? Cameron makes lots of money. John Major makes lots of money. Um, and they all do different, they, I think that, Tony and Major in particular, is my sense, do public service in a different way. And I think John Major is committing real acts of public service in speaking truth to power at the moment. I think Gordon Brown's done amazing things since he left office. I mean, I was very, very struck and impressed by him when I was the different Secretary of State Mm. coming into campaign on... But this goes back to the thing we talked about so often, is what is your motivation to being in politics? Gordon has never stopped being motivated by the things that motivated him when he was a minister and when he was a, a prime minister. And Tony's the same. I, was, I saw Tony last week and we were talking about Africa and we we're talking about climate change and we we're talking about Europe and what, you know, and he still sort of wakes up every day. They both do and thinks, you know, what can I do? They can do a lot less than they did because they don't have power. And that's both frustrating. Well, I remember thinking this with Gordon. Um, I, I do remember thinking this. He came in to see me very, very politely mm. and he was asking for money for his UN projects around education. And he was unbelievably polite. But I also remember feeling you know, kind of sorry for him in a way, because here was this very grand figure who'd been prime minister not very long before, sort of coming very politely to try to see if he could get a bit of assistance from some junior Tory minister. Mm. Um, And you do get that sense. And I remember actually even, I I think this sometimes with David Miliband, whether he doesn't miss being foreign secretary, even though he's doing this great job, amazing job. Oh, for sure, for sure. But you see, but if you you compare that, I, I think people hearing that will think, more highly of Gordon for the fact that he doesn't go in saying, like, I used to be the prime minister. I'm way more important than you. So listen to what I'm telling you. He doesn't. So compare that with Cameron's behavior during the green cell lobbying, for example, you know, I, and, and I think you've, you've got to ask that. What, what are people in public life for? Um, and, you know, I, so I, I think, I think it's, I think post because these leaders, look, there's Macron just been reelected president. He's still a young man. He's got five years. Then he's going to have another 30 years. Mm. What's he going to do with his life? And this is the question for Obama too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Joe Biden doesn't have the same problem. No, does not, does not have that problem. But it was a problem for Bill Clinton. Yeah, for sure. And created a big problem for Hillary. Yeah. No, post-power post life is a really interesting But it's partly thing. a problem. They all get in so young. Mm. And that began with Tony Blair, but it's it's become a real oh, fashion. Blame, blame Tony. Yeah, everything. It's his fault yeah. for everything. Um, but... It was when Cameron came in, he was, I think, the youngest prime minister in 200 years mm. or something. Mm. Very weird that it's become such a young man's job. Yeah, and it could, these things may go in cycles. I mean, you know, Joe Biden is not a young man. No, and nor, nor was Trump. America, nor was Trump, and Trump could be next. Who knows? But as we're in Scotland, can we do a few Scottish questions? Go on then. Um, I got a really interesting question from Fiona Duncan. Now, Fiona is somebody I know. I'll put my cards on the table. And I actually helped her a bit when she was in charge of the independent care review. I helped her on strategy and comms and stuff like that, which is in Scotland. Yep. So Nicola Sturgeon, care system in Scotland, yep. absolute men- yep. mess. Terrible, you know, the numbers terrible, the yep. story's terrible. Yep. Fiona Duncan did this a really, really good review. And she's now actually, the, 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 she said she's now in charge of something called The Promise, which is an organisation 
that exists to make sure that the politicians, they're now all party support for what she yep. came forward in the review yep. to make sure they actually do it. Great. Okay. But she, the question she wanted to ask was, uh, what is the best example we, you and I, have seen of taking a policy vision into reality and therefore what do you believe are the essential magic ingredient, ingredients to deliver transformational change in the public sector? Now, while you think about that, I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with Sure Start. Mm-hmm. Um, vision. It was about helping the poorest families and, and, and giving them giving them a chance. Uh, required leadership, both from the top. Tony Blair committed to it. Tessa Jowell, a minister that was absolutely rigorous about driving it through. Required cross part cross departmental mm-hmm. coordination. Required local government to mm-hmm. be properly engaged, required huge recruitment drives. And, and so it was operating all these different levels and it kind of came together. So I think, I hope if you're listening, Fiona, Fiona, by the way, says that anybody who's anybody in Scottish politics is listening to our podcast. So very good. True. Let's hope that's true. Uh, but I think that's, that. I think sure starts my answer. So, so let me just quickly pay tribute to Fiona, because for me, the real test of whether a policy is a really great policy and has really worked politically is whether it lasts. So the greatest example, obviously, is the National Health Service. Mm. All the odds were against it in the 1940s. Doctors were enraged. The Conservative Party at that stage was enraged, had every reason to believe that it might not last. And it's become completely embedded in our public life. That is great politics. And that's really smart politics. So Sure Start on that on that level fails. Sure Start failed because in the end, the real test of great politics is to make it permanent. And that means doing two things. That means convincing the opposition parties that in this end, this is something untouchable, mm. so brilliant that they're not going to go after it. It happened in the NHS. And the second thing is you've got to convince the public. And that's where the failure happened with DFID. And the 0.7%, where the Labour Party and the leadership of the Conservative Party agreed on the 0.7%, but never really sold it to the public, never really explained what this thing was. Mm. So it was much too easy for Boris Johnson to come along and cut it from 0.7 down to 0.5 because 70% of the public weren't with it. So I think the real genius is to make it stick. And that requires a lot of humility. That requires not making these things partisan. But you see, I would have argued that I can't remember what the, how the votes went on the whole Sure Start thing, but up until austerity, there was absolute bipartisan support, wasn't there? Well, I don't, not necessarily in the vote because there's always get people to find a reason to vote it against. But it somehow, I felt I remember it happening, being got rid of in 10, 2010, 11, 12. Mm. It wasn't deeply embedded enough. It wasn't. Mm. I didn't felt wasn't loved in Cumbria the way that other institutions. Yeah, but were maybe loved. that's because was it less needed in Cumbria than the places where it was really thriving? Maybe. Maybe, maybe. So that's back to the point about whether people don't really care about policy when it's not directly affecting them. Maybe, maybe it's about communication. Maybe it's mm. about lots of things. What about so, so that so on your basis though? So minimum wage, minimum wage, great, accepted, accepted, gonna never going to be unpicked. Nobody's going to unpick that. Bank of England independence, Bank of England independence, another very good example. I was about to give exactly that example. Scottish Parliament, Scottish Parliament, the same. Yep. The test of the test of one of these policies is whether you can imagine being reserved on the Tory side, gay marriage. Nobody's going to reverse that. It was very interesting that I remember that very strongly when I voted for it. A lot of my constituents were very, very unhappy. A lot of people voted against it, and the real test of it, though, is that now 
five years later, nobody would ever imagine reversing it. Do you know what? I can remember when we did the civil partnerships thing, I can remember, it's interesting how you talk about that thing about embedding change. I remember watching David Cameron deliver a conference speech as party leader when he, you know, and I've written enough conference speeches to know when you're expected, you're working up to an applause line. And it was when he was committing the Conservative Party to supporting civil partnerships. Uh, and even gay marriage, I can't remember whether it was then he did it. And But it was certainly accepting what we had done. And there was a kind of pause, and then they did start clapping. They all looked like they'd swallowed a lemon, but they were clapping. And I remember thinking, that's that's change. We we have delivered that change. Death penalty, not a good example. I worry about that one. I worry about that one. Whoa, you think people are going to reintroduce the death penalty? Uh, I... I really think that if you're not careful any populist who feels they're running out of road i think that's the way to go sometimes i don't think so but i i i'm not as confident as you are so shane asks in your youth well maybe not even your youth maybe 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 even in an older age which books or individuals shaped your politics most or in fact let me turn around maybe it's unfair to shame but is there a book that really changed your view of something johan harry's book on the drugs trade changed my view of drugs and made me realize that this just constantly talking about the war on drugs uh, and seeing it as a kind of purely as a crime issue effectively uh, was not a sensible thing to do it's absolutely brilliant book yeah what about you so for me it's a book by a guy called james c scott and it's called seeing like a state and it's a brilliant book and it looks at everything from uh, the planting of German forests in the 19th century to Tanzanian development policies in the 1970s. And in fact, the setting up of standard time in France after the revolution. He's basically an anarchist, Scott, but what he talks about is the incredible cruelty of setting up a central state, the way in which it knocks out all local diversity, the way in which it constrains freedom and the way it imposes a mesh of uniformity and he calls it seeing like a state because the state needs to count everything mm. needs to give everybody an exact mm. number mm. Uh, and it does it in time it does it in censuses it does it in the way that you plant trees and and i guess we both love trees but his point is that actually there's a real cost to it because what happened with the german forests is they planted these uniform forests right the way through the black forest which were catastrophic for biodiversity which had no resilience and that's what worries him about the modern state. So what state. was it that made, what, what was the change in you that the book produced? I think suddenly everything looked different to me. I suddenly, something I'd never seen as a problem before I saw as a problem. I suddenly saw the state as a problem. I suddenly began to believe in localism in a completely different way. I found a different language for talking about what it was that worried me about bureaucracy and civil servants, why it was that I really believed that Cumbering communities had things that were being crushed, why I believed that so much of what I loved about beauty, about history, about tradition, was about things that were individual and particular and that were very difficult to count so and measure. But so you're not small, are you a small state? Does that make you a small state person? Or are you saying that this, no, I think it makes state make, which make, operates think, more locally? I think, I think it makes me have some sympathy with anarchists, basically. Oh my God, we're getting it all now. <laughs> oh, and by the way, this is for the, what we call the technical people. Because I don't, I know I'm not capable of it. You might be, but I, did you notice there were people saying, "We do seem to mention books a lot. Can we please post 
links to the books okay we mentioned. we'll do we could that become like the new richard and judy of, we could of sort we of, are a bit like richard and judy you're, you're more like judy i think <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay so rory stewart thinks he's like richard Madeley. i will <laughs> happy to be judy um at smiley plankton right this maybe we should close on this as we are in scotland the uk is our home if it is to be broken up Shouldn't all UK citizens have a vote in any future independence referendum? Many Scots live in the rest of the UK. Many English, Welsh and Irish live in Scotland. How does one divide the indivisible? I think it's very, very difficult. When we've been together for 300 years, I think it's unbelievably difficult. I mean, I would have been tempted to say that people who identified as Scots, which probably be people like you and me, Mm -hmm. should have been able to vote in that referendum. But as he points out, we've been mixed together for so long. There are a million people who identify as English living in Scotland out of a population of 5 million people. It's so, so difficult working out the rules on this. And this is why I think these things are so unnecessary, why I think devolution is a better answer than independence. Well, I can remember during the referendum campaign when Alex Salmond uh, and Nicola Sturgeon fronted a very, very effective uh, photo call where they had people who lived in Scotland with the colour of their own flag and with yes in their own language. And they were from all around the world. And I can remember looking at that and thinking, okay, I can argue, well, I was born in England, right? But both my parents, born in Scotland, feel 100% Scottish, but because of work, lived in England. Uh, So they didn't get a vote. And yet I'm looking at people from Moldova, India, yeah. Pakistan, yeah. Romania, yeah. who all got a vote. Yeah, I, and I had I interviewed um, Alex Salmon once for GQ magazine mm-hmm. after the referendum. It was on the day Tony Benn died. Uh, I remember that because I was we were in Aberdeen. I asked him what his reaction was when Cameron raised the idea that some, uh, Smiley Plankton is yeah. raising that everybody in the UK should have a view because it's going to affect us all. And to my utter amazement, someone said, oh, he never raised that. The other one that made me very sad is I pushed, tried to push, as quite a junior MP, David Cameron, very hard to say that if we have the referendum, you must agree the rules in advance. There won't be another one for 20 years. And as far as I understand, he didn't raise that with... It's like the Brexit thing. He just thought, you know, I'm I'm in charge of this referendum, therefore we'll win it. No, he won it in Scotland. And more confirmation on why we need a constitution, because that can govern rules on things like referendums. Instead of which, the whole thing's being made up. Remember in the 70s, they needed a supermajority to go independent. Mm -hmm. Then suddenly that changed to a simple majority. Wasn't really done with any constitutional process. Just the member of the prime minister gets out of bed in the morning and suddenly changes the rules. Yeah. Well, I think on that, Time to wrap up. And thank you very much for coming to my home, Alistair. My pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And, I, and I'm, um, I'm going to come and snoop around your home in London next. Anytime. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for all your questions, all your kind comments. And uh, just to let you know that both of our shows on May the 25th are sold out. So we look forward to seeing a few hundred of you at those. And uh, we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Thank you again. <laughs> <laughs>